0: Yeah, Jesse. I'm Ramon Alam. I'm
1: Asan Janga. This is Maurice Meyer. This is Imbolombwe. I'll be reading from the first chapter of my novel, Behold the Dreamers. Heartbreaker.
2: The reactive, rich, and pretty.
0: And I will be reading an excerpt from my novel, Homegoing.
3: I'm Kevin Larimer, Editor-in-Chief of Poets and Writers.
4: And I'm Melissa Falavina, the Senior Editor of Poets and Writers. And this is Ampersand, the Poets and Writers podcast.
3: In this episode, we will be previewing the July-August Agents issue, which features an in-depth interview with the four agents who last year joined forces as partners in the book group.
4: We'll also be hearing readings from some of the authors featured in our annual roundup of the summer's best debut fiction. And more. So stick around.
3: starting to feel like summer. It is. You know what that means. What does it mean? The agent's issue.
0: Yes. Yes.
3: So we put together a really great special section. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you're a writer, you've finished your manuscript, and now it's time to start looking for an agent. Mm It's going to be a pretty daunting process, right? Super daunting. Lots of research to do. Mm -hmm. As a writer, you have to make a decision about where to pitch your work. Uh, You can go with the well-known veteran agent who has the big name, all the contacts, sort of an impressive list of clients, right? Right. But maybe they don't have as much time to work with an author who's just starting out. Uh, Or maybe they're not even considering new clients. Well, there's also more junior agents. Uh, Their names might not be as familiar, uh, but they're young and they're hungry and they're passionate and they're building their list and ready to spend the time and energy it takes to build your career. So Michael Bourne has written an article about this. It's called Agent Experience, and uh, you should check it out.
4: Yeah, it's really helpful. Uh, we also have uh, a piece by Betsy Lerner. It's called Rock, Paper, Scissors. It's about her experience being uh, a writer, an editor, and an agent, and kind of the things she's learned from all three of those positions, and her decision um, ultimately to really uh, put her energy into being an agent. hmm
3: It's a great headline. It really is. Uh, we also have an aha moment with Nicole Araji. Mm-hmm. Uh, she shares her notes on a manuscript by Naomi J. Williams. hmm Uh, But the centerpiece of the special section is another installment of Agents and Editors with Michael Zerban. Uh, He sat down with Julie Bearer, Faye Bender, Brittany Bloom, and Elizabeth Weed. Uh, They are the four agents who joined forces as partners in the book group last June. And they spoke about changes in the publishing industry, uh, what writers should do in the lead up to publication, and the secret to a good pitch. Pitching. You guys have talked a little bit about that. So, that's something that a lot of writers, I think, have no clue how to do mm-hmm. I mean, at first. They, they know they've written something, but it took them 85,000 words to say what they wanted to say. Right, they don't know right, how to right. say it in 85 words. Right. Um, so what is a good pitch? How do you craft one? Um, what can writers do? Let's just talk about pitching.
5: You all might disagree with me on this, um, so I'll just throw it out there. But I've been thinking about this lately, that I don't necessarily think it's critical that an author be able to pitch her own his or her own work initially. Like I think eventually mm-hmm. they need to understand how to talk about it in a way that makes where they understand. But I've had a number of projects I can think of over the years that came to me and what I'm thinking about right now that like it, it the way it came to me, I just happened to take a look at it and I fell in love with it, but it was not because of the way it was pitched, it was because of the writing and the voice.
6: There's um, something oh, in there yes, that's right. important, but it's not necessary There's something, maybe intangible even, yeah. that's important in the query letter, but it it's, isn't necessarily the distilling the elevator yeah. pitch for your mm-hmm. book. It's more introducing so much themselves. As, so much as it is communicating, I think in your writing that, that you have
5: mastery over the. I don't know what it is. It's like I, 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 I've just started to feel like you know. So many writers when I go to lots of conferences and they always are. You know they want to know how to pitch their book, and I'm like, I kind
6: of want to say, you know, focus so on the writing, right. like, make it so, so much important on that because that's how you, yeah. But I feel like it. my, my job so is to pitch stuff. the book. I think it's really important for an author to be able to demonstrate yes, a certain level of understanding of the business, yeah, I and, think that's true. and to get yeah, a uh, research done, mm-hmm. right? So to be able to right. say, like, yes. here is why. I
5: I am pitching my work to you. Right, right. Very important. Right. Right. I would agree with that. There is something specific to the pitch that you need to be able to demonstrate that as well. And it can be
6: helpful if they can contextualize their work in the current
5: landscape. Mm -hmm. If they they pay attention, if they really read and pay attention to what's out there. I think there's also just... But
3: those things might come across without grabbing you in the first two sentences with like the perfect thing of you know it's right. this book meets this book yeah right. I they don't like, have to do that, that yeah no, that's our like, job yeah <laughs> i, I, I that. think that we also
6: i, I think I give think a little that. bit of a pass at the, the pitch itself, because we recognize that writers are primarily talented at writing their book, and writing a query letter is a very different skill set. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I feel like when I look at a query letter, I'm more looking at what the story is about mm-hmm. and the voice of the letter than I am, like, did you get jacket copy Right. down?
5: Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that's what I I'm agree. trying to say. It's like, I feel like my... If knowledge... you can communicate
6: what the story is about in a compelling way, then whether or not it's the perfect elevator pitch isn't important. It's whether or not you made it sound interesting enough for me to want to see the manuscript.
3: Summer reading.
4: Summer reading. Do you feel like you read more in the summer?
3: Um, I don't feel like my, my reading is really tied to the season so much. Um, you know, I, I read pretty consistently, but there are those periods where, for whatever reason, I just don't get absorbed into a novel like I sometimes do. You mm-hmm. know, I was, actually wrote about this in the editor's note, um, where I, I was doing some traveling and I didn't read at all during, while I was abroad. Right. Um, and it felt like maybe the narrative of my life was maybe enough. You mm-hmm. know? Um, but then I came back, and I had this period where I just was like devouring books. And um, I don't know. That's it's interesting.
4: Yeah. Well, like you know, the the for a lot of people, summer sort of is this period of time where they have more time off. They you know go to the beach, I guess, um, and <laughs> and read more. And uh, you know, you see these lists: beach reads, summer reads. Are um, people reading on the beach? I don't know. Are, if, if Listeners, are you to this, yeah. reading on the beach? Because I feel like when I'm at the beach, the few occasions I don't go to the beach very much, but when I do go to the beach, it's like there's wind and there's sand and there's sun, and it's not actually conducive to reading. No.
3: If you find yourself at the beach reading, please send us an email. <laughs> Can ampersand you let us know? at pw.org. <laughs>
4: Hashtag that would, beach reading. That would really? Be great.
3: <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, summer is a great time to read. Mm mm-hmm. um, yeah, I read I read a lot of books. Um, one of them that I really loved uh, is called Anatomy of a Soldier. Mm-hmm. It's by Harry Parker. He is a former uh, officer in the British Army, and he fought in Afghanistan and lost both of his legs. Um, and Knopf is publishing uh, his debut novel. And um, it's a, a really great book. Uh, I was a little skeptical of the premise of it at first because... Um, what it is is it's a it's a sele- it's a collection of forty five chapters, and each of them are told from the perspective of a different inanimate object. Hmm. Um, so there's a chapter told from the perspective of his helmet, or his boots, or the gun, or the bullet in the gun, or the wire that connects the you know the battery to the IED um, yeah. that you know explodes and and he loses his legs, um, but he pulls it off. Brilliantly. It's it's a really, really good book, so I mm-hmm. recommend that.
4: And that is part of our list of nine notable debuts, mm-hmm. which uh, we have in this issue, in addition to our five featured debut authors.
3: Right. First Fiction 2016, we have uh, an incredible lineup of debut authors. And I love this feature because each year we ask five established authors to introduce the debut authors. Uh, so this year we have Angela Flournoy, who introduces Ya Jessie? She's on our cover. She looks great. Um, she is the author of an incredible novel called Homegoing. Mm-hmm.
4: Um, we also have Naomi Jackson introducing Masande Changa, who is the author of The Reactive.
3: And Emma Straub introduces Ruman Alam. Uh, he's the author of Rich and Pretty. Um,
4: and Lindsay Hunter introduces Maurice Meyer, who is the author of Heartbreaker. It's a story collection.
3: And the excellent Christina Baker Klein introduces Mbolo Mbwe, uh, who is the author of the novel Behold the Dreamers.
4: So, we asked each of our debut authors to read an excerpt from their new books, and we're going to hear some of that now.
0: My name is Ya Jesse, and I will be reading an excerpt from my novel Homegoing. The night Afia Otre was born into the musky heat of Funtiland, Land. A fire raged through the woods just outside her father's compound. It moved quickly, tearing a path for days. It lived off the air. It slept in caves and hidden trees. It burned up and through, unconcerned with what wreckage it left behind until it reached an Ashanti village. There it disappeared, becoming one with the night. Afia's father, Kobi Otre, left his first wife Baaba with the new baby so that he might survey the damage to his yams, that most precious crop known far and wide to sustain families. Kobi had lost seven yams and he felt each loss as a blow to his own family. He knew then that the memory of the fire that burned then fled would haunt him, his children, and his children's children for as long as the line continued. When he came back into Baba's hut to find Afia, the child of the night's fire, shrieking into the air, he looked at his wife and said, we will never again speak of what happened today. The villagers began to say that the baby was born of the fire, that this was the reason Baba had no milk. Afia was nursed by Kobi's second wife, who had just given birth to a son three months before. Afia would not latch on. And when she did, her sharp gums would tear at the flesh around the woman's nipples until she became afraid to feed the baby. Because of this, Afia grew thinner, skin on small bird-like bones with a large black hole of a mouth that expelled a hungry cry, which could be heard throughout the village, even on the days Baba did her best to smother it, covering the baby's lips with the rough palm of her left hand love her Kobi commanded as though love were as simple an act as lifting food up from an iron plate and past one's lips at night baba dreamed of leaving the baby in the dark forest so that the god Nyame could do with her as he pleased afia grew older the summer after her third birthday baba had her first son the boy's name was fifi and he was so fat that sometimes when Baba wasn't looking, Afia would roll him along the ground like a ball. The first day that Baba let Afia hold him, she accidentally dropped him. The baby bounced on his buttocks, landed on his stomach, and looked up at everyone in the room, confused as to whether or not he should cry. He decided against it, but Baba, who had been stirring Benku, lifted her stirring stick and beat Afia across her bare back. Each time the stick lifted off the girl's body, it would leave behind hot, sticky pieces of banku that burned into her flesh. By the time Baba had finished, Afia was covered with sores, screaming and crying. From the floor, rolling this way and that on his belly, Fifi looked at Afia with his saucer eyes, but made no noise. Kobi came home to find his other wives attending to Afia's wounds and understood immediately what had happened. He and Baba fought well into the night. Afia could hear them through the thin walls of the hut where she lay on the floor, drifting in and out of a feverish sleep. In her dream, Kobi was a lion and Baba was a tree. The lion plucked the tree from the ground where it stood and slammed it back down. The tree stretched its branches in protest, and the lion ripped them off one by one. The tree, horizontal, began to cry. Red ants that traveled down the thin cracks between its bark. The ants pooled on the soft earth around the top of the tree trunk. And so the cycle began. Baba beat Afia. Kobi beat Baba. By the time Afia had reached age ten. She could recite a history of the scars on her body. The summer of 1764, when Baba broke yams across her back. The spring of 1767, when Baba bashed her left foot with a rock, breaking her big toe so that it now always pointed away from the other toes. For each scar on Afia's body, there was a companion scar on Baba's. But that didn't stop mother from beating daughter father from beating mother. Matters were only made worse by Afia's blossoming beauty. When she was 12, her breasts arrived, two lumps that sprang from her chest as soft as mango flesh. The men of the village knew that first blood would soon follow and they waited for the chance to ask Baba and Kobi for her hand. The gifts started. One man tapped palm wine better than anyone else in the village. But another's fishing nets were never empty. Kobe's family feasted off of Afia's burgeoning womanhood. Their bellies, their hands, were never empty.
3: through in my editor's note is this notion that uh, reading is a conversation. Um, I remembered this quote by Alberto Manguel. Um, he has this book called A Reading Diary. And um, he talks about how reading is a conversation. And his point is that, you know, when you read the text on the page mingles with all of the kind of bits and pieces that are lodged in your mind, uh, you know, the the article that you read yesterday, or the song lyrics that you memorized when you're a teenager, or, you know, all of the different experiences in your mind are sort of illuminating the text mm-hmm. or vice versa. The text is illuminating all of these things in your mind. and It's a conversation, which I thought was a really interesting idea. Mm-hmm. And
4: that's sort of, uh, we had a, it's an experience that kind of, um, I don't know, that reminds me of recently
3: mm-hmm.
4: where you, you read a book and then you <laughs> desperately needed to talk. To somebody yeah. about
3: it. Well, I enjoyed reading this book, but all along I was skeptical about what I was reading. Um, and we should point out that this is not a book that was included in First Fiction no. 2016. But yes, it was a novel and I and I sort of tore through it and I enjoyed reading it, but I was skeptical. And I had that experience of finishing a book and I, and I didn't immediately have someone to talk to about it. And I don't know if you've had this experience, but it just feels like there's this incredible energy that builds up and you have to that's the amazing thing about reading, right? It's like you're driven to talk about it. Right. Um,
4: Even if you don't enjoy the book, uh, as the case may have been right. for us or me anyway. Right. I walked into your office one morning and you were like, can you read this? <laughs> and I was like, okay. And then, you know, kind of, I I I read it and it was... There was certainly something compelling about it, but I but I also like had a lot of feelings, um, <laughs> and read it pretty quickly. And then we talked about it a few days later, mm-hmm. and it was it was sort of cathartic to yes. be able to um, articulate all the reasons why I actually didn't like this book. Right, right, um, and, it and sort of
3: confirmed my suspicions about it. Yeah, um, but I think that that's actually a really important thing to keep in mind. Like. Y- you don't have to love everything that you read. Like there's mm-hmm. actually, a, it's a really interesting um, experience to read something that you don't love and then articulate the reasons why. Mm-hmm. Uh is, why is, book clubs exist. That's right, why you know exactly. why we,
4: we why we love to talk about books. Exactly.
3: Um, but the um, the idea that reading is a conversation that that quote from Alberto Manguel. Occurred to me after I and it was actually sort of a, a perfect example of exactly what he was talking about. The text on the page illuminating something that you had, you know, read in the past. I re, I remembered that book after reading a quote by Ruman Alam, who is a debut author in first fiction 2016. Um, he spoke with Emma Straub, and he had this really really great quote. He says, "Writing is a conversation, and it's pointless to have a one-sided conversation." The reader is essential to the work, the reader takes over the work, and I'm really looking forward to that point when the book stops being mine altogether and belongs to the people who choose to read it.
2: I'm Rahman Alam, and this is an excerpt from my first novel, Rich and Pretty. Lauren's office is freezing. You could keep butter on the desk. You could perform surgery. Every woman in the office, they're all women, keeps a cashmere sweater on the back of her chair. They sit, hands outstretched over computer keyboards, like a bums over a flaming garbage can. The usual office noises. Typing, telephones, people using indoor voices, the double ding of an elevator going down. For some reason, the double ding of the elevator going down is louder than the single ding of the elevator going up. There's a metaphor in there, waiting to be untangled. They make cookbooks, these women. There's no food. Just stacks of paper and editorial assistance and glasses. She's worked here for four years. It's fine. Today is different because there's a guy, an actual dude, in the office with them. Not a photographer or stylist popping by for a meeting, as does happen. He's a temp because Kristen is having a baby and her doctor put her on bed rest. Lauren isn't totally clear on what Kristen does, but now there's a dude doing it. He's wearing a button-down shirt and jeans and loafers, not sneakers, which implies a certain maturity. Lauren's been trying to get him to notice her all day. She's the second prettiest woman in the office, so it isn't hard. Hannah, the prettiest, has a vacant quality about her. She's not stupid, exactly. In fact, she's very competent, but she doesn't have spark. She's not interesting, just thin and blonde, with heavy eyeglasses and a photograph of her French bulldog on her computer screen. Lauren has it all planned out. She'll walk past his desk a couple of times, which isn't suspicious because his desk isn't far from the kitchen, and the kitchen is where the coffee is, and by the third time, he'll follow her in there, and she'll make a wisecrack about the coffee, and he'll say, it's not so bad, and they'll talk and exchange phone numbers, email addresses, whatever, and then later, they'll leave the office at the same time, ride down together in the elevator, and not talk, because they both understand that the social contract dictates that sane people do not talk in elevators, and then he'll let her go through the revolving door first, even though she's pretty sure that etiquette has it that men precede women, through revolving doors. And then they'll both be standing on Broadway, and there will be traffic and that vague smell of charred ethnic meat from the guy with the lunch card on the corner. And he'll suggest they get a drink, and she'll say, sure. And they'll go to the Irish pub on 55th Street because there's nowhere else to go. And after two drinks, they'll be starving. And he'll suggest they get dinner, but there's nowhere to eat in this part of town, so they take the train to Union Square and realize there's nowhere to eat there either. And they'll walk down into the East Village and find something, maybe ramen or that Moroccany place that she always forgets she likes. And they'll eat, and they'll start touching each other casually but deliberately carefully and the check will come and she'll say let's split it and he'll say no let me even though he's a temp and can't make that much money right Then they'll be drunk, so taking a cab seems wise, and they'll make out in the back seat, but just a little bit, and kind of laugh about it too, stop to check their phones, or admire the view, or so he can explain that he lives with a roommate or a dog, or so she can tell him some stupid story about work that won't mean anything to him anyway, because it's only his first day and he doesn't know anyone's name, let alone their personality quirks and the complexities of the office's political and social ecosystem. Then he'll pay the driver because they'll go to his place. She doesn't want to bring the temp back to her place. And it'll be nice, or fine, or ugly. And he'll open beers because all he has are beers, and she'll pretend to drink hers even though she's had enough. And he'll excuse himself for a minute to go to the bathroom. But really, it's to brush his teeth, piss, maybe rub some wet toilet paper around his ass and under his balls. This is something Gabe had told her years ago, that men do this, or at least that he did. Unerotic, but somehow touching. Then the temple comes sit next to her on the couch, please let it be a couch and not a futon, and he'll play with her hair a little before he kisses her, his mouth minty, hers beery. He'll be out of his shirt then, and he's hard and hairy, but also a little soft at the belly, which she likes. She once slept with this guy Sean, whose torso, hairless and lean, freaked her out. It was like having sex with a female mannequin. The temp will push or pull her into his bedroom, just the right balance of aggression and respect, and the room will be fine or ugly, and the bedsheets will be navy, as men's bedsheets always are, and there will be Venetian blinds and lots of books on the nightstand because he's temping at a publishing company so he must love to read. She'll tug at her shirt over her head, and he'll pull at her bra, and they'll be naked, and he'll fumble around for a condom, and his dick will be long, but not, crucially, thick, and it will be good, and then it will be over. They'll laugh about how this whole thing is against this company's sexual harassment policy. She'll try to cover herself with the sheet, and he'll do the same, suddenly embarrassed by his smaller, slightly sticky dick. When he's out of the room to get a beer, to piss, whatever, she'll get dressed. He'll call her a car service because there are no yellow cabs wherever he lives. They'll both spend the part of the night before they fall asleep trying to figure out how to act around each other in the office tomorrow. Or maybe not that. Maybe she'll find a way to go up to him and say, "'What?' Exactly. Hey, do you like parties? Do you want to go to a party tonight? No, the jeans and tie are fine. It's not fancy. A party. A good party. Good open bar, for sure. Probably canapes. What are canapes, exactly? Whatever they are, there will probably be some. Last party, there were these balls of cornbread and shrimp, like Deep Pride. Holy shit, they were great. That was last year, I think. Anyway, there might be celebrities there. There will definitely be celebrities there. I once saw Bill Clinton at one of these parties. He's skinnier than you'd think. Anyway, think about it. It'll be a time. And by the way, I'm Lauren. I'm an associate editor here. And you are? She can picture this conversation, the words coming to her so easily, as they do in fantasy, but never in reality. They call it meeting cute in movies, but it only happens in movies.
1: In I'll be reading from the first chapter of my novel, Behold the Dreamers. He'd never been asked to wear a suit to a job interview, never been told to bring along a copy of his resume. He hadn't even owned a resume until the previous week when he'd gone to the library on 34th and Madison, and a volunteer career counselor had written one for him, detailed his work history to suggest he was a man of grand accomplishments. Farmer responsible for tilling land and growing healthy crops. Street cleaner responsible for making sure the town of Limbe looked beautiful and pristine. Dishwasher in Manhattan restaurant in charge of ensuring patrons ate from clean and gem-free plates. Livery cab driver in the Bronx responsible for taking passengers safely from place to place. He'd never had to worry about whether his experience would be appropriate, whether his English would be perfect, whether he would succeed in coming across as intelligent enough. But today, dressed in the green double-breasted pin-striped suit, he'd worn the day he entered America. His ability to impress a man he'd never met was all he could think about. Try as he might, he could do nothing but think about the questions he might be asked, the answers he would need to give the way he would have to walk and talk and sit, the times he would need to speak or listen and nod, the things he would have to say or not say, the response he would need to give if asked about his legal status in the country. His throat went dry, his palms moistened. Unable to reach for his handkerchief in the packed downtown subway, he wiped both palms on his pants. Good morning, please, he said to the security guard in the lobby when he arrived at Lehman Brothers. My name is Jender Jonga. I am here for Mr. Edwards, Mr. Clark Edwards. The guard, gouty and freckled, asked for his ID, which he quickly pulled out of his brown bifold wallet. The man took it, examined it front and back, looked up at his face, looked down at his suit, smiled and asked if he was trying to become a stockbroker or something. Jender shook his head. No, he replied without smiling back. A chauffeur. Ride on, the guard said, as he passed him a visitor pass. Good luck with that. This time, Jende smiled. Thank you, my brother, he said. I really need all that good luck today. Alone in the elevator to the 28th floor, he inspected his fingernails. No death, thankfully. He adjusted his clip-on tie using the security mirror above his head. We examined his teeth and found no visible remnants of the fried rice plantains and beans he'd eaten for breakfast. He cleared his throat and wiped off whatever saliva had crusted on the sides of his lips. When the door opened, he straightened his shoulders and introduced himself to the receptionist, who, after responding with a nod and a display of extraordinarily white teeth, made a phone call and asked him to follow her. They walked through an open space where young men in blue shirts sat in cubicles with multiple screens, down a corridor, past another open space of cluttered cubicles, and into a sunny office with a 4 paneled glass window running from wall to wall and floor to ceiling, the thousand autumn drenched trees and proud towers of Manhattan standing outside. For a moment his mouth fell open at the view outside, the likes of which he'd never seen, and the exquisiteness inside. There was a lounging section, black leather sofa, two black leather chairs, glass coffee table to his right, an executive desk over cherry black leather reclining chair for the executive, two green leather armchairs for visitors in the center, and a wall unit, cherry glass doors wide folders in neat rows to his left, in front of which Clark Edwards in a dark suit was standing and feeding sheets of paper into a pull-out shredder. Please say a good morning, Jender said, turning towards him and half bowing. Have a seat, Clark said without lifting his eyes from the shredder. Jender hurried to the armchair on the left. He pulled a resume from his folder and placed it in front of Clark's seat, careful not to disturb the layers of white papers and Wall Street journals strewn across the desk in a jumbo. One of the journal pages, picking from beneath sheets of numbers and graphs, had the headline, White's Great Hope, Barack Obama and the Dream of a Colorblind America. Jender leaned forward to read the story fascinated as he was by the young ambitious senator but immediately sat upright when he remembered where he was why he was there what was about to happen do you have any outstanding tickets you need to resolve clark asked as he sat down no sir gender replied and you haven't been in any serious accidents right no mr edwards clark picked up the resume from his desk wrinkled and moist like the man whose history it held his eyes remained on it for several seconds while Jende darted back and forth from the central park treetops far beyond the window to the office walls lined with abstract paintings and portraits of white men wearing bow ties. He could feel bits of sweat rising out of his forehead. Well, Jender," Clark said, putting the resume down and leaning back in his chair, tell me about yourself.
4: that's it for this episode.
3: Yeah, so check out the agents issue. You know, we have a lot more information online. Uh, We have an agents database. We do. There's over 100 agents in there. We have their client lists. We have submission tips. We have their Twitter handles. So check that out. It's pw.org forward slash literary (laughs) underscore agents.
4: And tune in next time when we will be talking about everybody's favorite topic.
3: The MFA.
4: Yes, the MFA.
3: You know, Carolyn Kellogg says something interesting about the MFA, and this issue's is installment of Reviewers and Critics by Michael Takens.
4: She does. Uh, she is the book editor of the Los Angeles Times. And among other things, she talks about the MFA and this sort of assumption that uh, an MFA prepares you for a career in academia, but that there are actually a lot of different paths that one might take after completing
3: an MFA. Right. Which is a good thing, of course, because there's way more people graduating with an MFA than there are available academic jobs, right?
4: That is true. So we will be talking about this and so much more on the next episode of Ampersand, the Poets and Writers
5: Podcast. Ampersand is a production of Poets and Writers, Inc., the nation's largest nonprofit organization serving creative writers. Ampersand is edited by Melissa Fallovino, with assistance from Jonathan Walsh. Music for this episode was provided by Poddington Bear, D. Smiles, Alash Ensemble, and Chastity Belt. Subscribe to Ampersand on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, or through our website, where you'll find photos, articles, and ephemera for each episode, including additional readings and excerpts from our first fiction authors, and an extended interview with the agents from the book group at pw.org forward slash ampersand.